Peter Clark, Professor Emeritus of Modern British History at Cambridge University. Peter, thank you very much. You are a professor of British political history. You've written numerous books, including Keynes and Churchill, so you know a lot about leadership and politics. We're here to discuss Theresa May's leadership of the Conservative Party during Brexit. Are there any historical parallels that we can look back to and say, this is the situation Theresa May finds herself in? I think the historical parallel that strikes me as most interesting and apposite takes us back to the beginning of the 20th century when Arthur Balfour became leader of the Conservative Party. Um, he succeeded his, his uncle, the great Lord Salisbury. Balfour became leader in 1902 and he was leader and indeed Prime Minister for three years until he came spectacularly unstuck when the inevitable general election finally came along and swept the Conservatives out of power. Now, the interesting thing here is, I think, that the Conservative Party, for one of the rare times in its history, ceased to be a small-c Conservative pragmatic party. It got consumed with ideology. And the ideological division at that time was over free trade and protection. Free trade had been the national consensus for the previous 60, 70 years since the equally great furore over the Corn Laws in the 1840s. Everyone had accepted free trade on the Conservative side as much as on the Liberal side. But within the Conservative and Unionist Party, Joseph Chamberlain, always a wild card in politics, a former Liberal, he said we need tariff reform. And he was going to say, we must abandon free trade. This cosmopolitan idea, it's played out. It doesn't suit us any longer. We must go for using tariffs in a constructive way in order to maintain Britain's role in the world as the centre of a great empire which can be bound together by imperial preference. That was essentially the nature of the crisis which Balfour found was on his hands throughout his premiership. It was the one thing, it was the monkey on his back, it was the one thing he could never get away from. And what happened? Well, he succeeded in many short-term ways in keeping the show on the road. He kept his cabinet together. He lost a few by resignation, some on the left, some on the right, some of the old free traders, yes, but some of the new protectionists as well. He devised many ingenious formula for papering over the cracks here. He mused on the uh, difficulty of doing this. He survived humiliations in the House of Commons and he stayed Prime Minister. He put off a general election as long as he could, but in the end, the moment of truth came. The floods broke. When the election finally happened in January 1906, it was the biggest landslide of the 20th century. The Liberals swept into power and every section of the Conservative Party, whether they'd been old free traders or whether they were new-style tariff reformers, got swept away in the flood. And the same happened with the Corn Laws? The same had happened back, back in the 1840s. Of course, I, the further back we go, Bonnie, I think the more cautious we must be about drawing any sort of parallels. If we go back to the 1840s, you don't have a democratic electorate 
in any sense of the word. By the early 1900s, although women don't have the vote and although the, the franchise is not universal among men, there's, there's no strong class bias in the franchise. So in a sense, you've got a sort of democratic context there and it makes more sense perhaps to look for parallels within that sort of framework than it does by going much further back into British history. Moving on to today, Theresa May, it's vote 100 year, 100 years of women in the vote, but you have the second only female prime minister, both within the Conservative Party. Now, her leadership is often billed as being weak. She stepped into the breach when David Cameron, after the referendum in 2016, stood down. She was very much seen as a pragmatic leader, a Remainer, but someone who would deliver Brexit, a big question. But two years on, how has she done? She was dealt a very poor hand by history, but on the other hand, would she have become Prime Minister at that moment? But for Cameron and Osborne suddenly finding their careers foreshortened. You can look at that perspective either way round. She is often accused, as you say, of being indecisive, of, of just wobbling around, of looking for any sort of patch-up and, and compromise. But in some ways, she dug herself into the difficulties that she now faces. She made a very important speech in the summer of, of 2016, when she laid down her red lines, when she said, we will invoke Article 50 on a set timetable to leave the EU with that two-year lead period that's now looming up on us due in March 2019, of course. She didn't have done any of that. At the time, it seemed like good politics in that it gave her the support of the Brexit wing of the party, where she was suspect as a former Remainer, although she'd certainly kept her head down in a very prudent or pragmatic way during the referendum campaign, a lot of her difficulties go back to hustling the Brexit issue along before there was a coherent position on the British side, still less in the Conservative Party. In that sense, I think, although we might feel sorry for Theresa May, week by week in some of the difficulties that now face her, many of them are of her own making. But as a Remainer taking over the Conservative Party leadership and wanting to deliver Brexit, she was hidebound because she had to seem tough on Brexit. We're going to deliver it. She couldn't have said, well, let's have a royal commission, let's wait and see what that says. Perhaps a Brexiteer could, but a Remainer couldn't. Aren't you being a little bit harsh on her? She was hidebound. She had to show that she was going to deliver Brexit. So she said, we're going to trigger Article 50. Yes, indeed. All of that is true. And she didn't just fulfil that commitment. She over-fulfilled. That's my point. A more prudent leader, a more canny leader, perhaps a more devious leader, would surely have been able to craft the sort of tub-thumping speech that would have shown her heart was in the right place without actually tying herself down to a series of conditions which, as it's turned out, are impossible to fulfil. That leads us on to the December 2017 agreement where the UK government signed up to the Northern Ireland backstop, which appears to have been the main stumbling 
block in reaching a deal, any kind of deal, with the EU27, whether it's the Chequers deal or not. But that Northern Ireland backstop, I'm very curious, did she know that that would mean the United Kingdom had to stay in the single market and customs union? If she didn't know, she ought to have done. As the Irish keep reminding us, very politely, very temperately, but it's all here in writing with your signature on it. Do you want me to read it back to you? Somebody said on to John Humphreys on the Today programme just the other week, and John Humphreys said, oh, no, 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 we needn't bother with that. But my word, if you're going to make commitments to the EU27 in writing and sign up to them, you'd better mean them because the EU notoriously is a much more bureaucratic, paper-bound, pledge-bound system of government where nods and winks and other exercises in pragmatism in the British tradition simply don't cut the mustard. Now, the EU27 have proved remarkably strong as a group. They've held together under Barnier's negotiations, whereas it's the UK who has been unable to hold a line, if you like, or get agreement on a line. They've had the resignation of Boris Johnson and Davis Davis over the Chequers deal. Do you think the Chequers deal is a good one, that we will eventually conclude something under it and perhaps have some fudge over Northern Ireland? How do you see that playing out? I think the Chequers deal was perhaps the best that ingenuity could have produced given all the other commitments that have been made at that particular moment. Ollie Robbins, of course, is the civil servant who has been most instrumental in actually putting these sort of things together and is now currently vilified by the Brexiteers. Uh, but he's only doing his job as a civil servant in trying to make coherent what were, in fact, a number of rather incoherent pledges. I don't think the Chequers deal was at all a good proposal. I think it was internally incoherent and it didn't face up to the central difficulty of reconciling the pledges that Mrs May herself had given simultaneously that there would be no hard border between the north of Ireland and the south and equally there would be no border on the Irish Sea. And when you put this together, it was always impossible to see how this conundrum could be resolved. Maybe the Brits signed up to it, thinking that the EU would fragment, believing yet again that this might happen. But as you said to me just now, isn't it remarkable that the 27 of them have kept together and it's on the British side that the position has become increasingly incoherent and over time it's on the British side that we've seen these spectacular resignations uh, from the cabinet of which David Davis and Boris Johnson are the two most prominent examples. Do you accept that the European Reform Group under Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, Davis, Davis, they're basically leaders in waiting, that this is all a battle, not about Europe, but about who leads the Conservative Party. And it was under George Osborne and David Cameron as well. It's not really about whether we want to be a member of Europe, but we've all been driven, not by our ideology, 
but by this battle for the Conservative Party leadership. This, of course, is partly true. I think under Cameron and Osborne, the issue was all about tactics. It was how to see off UKIP. Believing that they had won the Scottish referendum previously by wheeling out Project Fear, with the experience of the 2015 general election when the Tory party had won by rolling out Project Fear, they thought they could do it a third time. A third victory for Project Fear, UKIP will disappear, and Cameron himself notoriously had no contingency plans for what to do in, in the case of a leave vote in the referendum. Sure, all of that, you can say, was tactical. I think it's more complex in the party as it's now emerged. I think there is a real ideological division there, which, as I tried to suggest earlier, is very unusual historically in the Conservative Party. They are the great party of pragmatism. This is how, since the era of the great Lord Salisbury in the late 19th century, this is how the party has been the dominant force in British government for a century and, and a half. And it's when the Conservatives have become ideological, as they did before the First World War, when the issue of tariff reform came up, that they have found themselves in trouble and indeed in opposition. The opinion polls look remarkably good for Theresa May at the moment. You say that, but I think what Britain thinks gives her a, a 4% increase this week over the previous week. She's more in favour than Jeremy Corbyn is within his leadership of the Labour Party. Is she going to be able to hang on, because hang on is the right word, week to week as leader of the Tory party? Does it depend on what happens to that Brexit bill when it gets before Parliament, whether people dare vote it down, therefore for a no deal which might trigger a second referendum? The scenarios are manifold at the moment coming out of the mm. lobby correspondence. But will she be able to get the Brexit bill through Parliament, do you think? Going back to your point about the opinion polls first, let's remember that the opinion polls look very good for Theresa May when she called a general election in 2017. And do you remember what happened then? Yeah. I think you do. So I don't think she's going to do that in a hurry. The second point is we're in the lull before the storm. The storm has, has yet to break when the deadlines finally can't be put off any longer on the question of whether there is deal or no deal. We will then have concrete alternatives. At this point, it seems to me the Conservative Party is quite likely to be fragmented in its views. The outcome, it would be a very bold person who confidently predicted what the outcome would be there. But I can't see a way that a majority can be put together within the Conservative Party for any of these positions. And when it comes to asking for Labour support, are you serious? Is the party of Corbyn actually going to prop up Mrs May on putting through some form of Brexit? I can't see that happening either. Some Remainers within the Labour Party might, but then the predicament for Theresa May is that if she gets the Brexit bill through, whatever the deal is with Chequers or whatever, some kind of fudge, she will have then got the Brexit bill through with the support of Labour, that means she can't retain her position as leader as well, doesn't it? I, I think it really does. Whichever way you play it, and when you make all the allowances for the difficulty of the position she's in with the rather weak 
cards in her hand now, it's very difficult to conceive of her personally mastering the situation so that she actually delivers on, on Brexit and maintains her party majority and prevents the government from falling apart, which it can do on any confidence issue before that happens. After all, the Ulster Unionists keep growling about last week it was we might bring the government down on the budget. Well, they're not going to do that, I think. They've uh, got some nice handouts. Yeah. It doesn't have to be Brexit itself, which becomes the, the final stumbling block there. What we need with, within the terms of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is a vote of confidence to go wrong. And as we know, any vote can be labelled a vote of confidence. It's a card which the government has to be very careful in playing because once they say it's a vote of confidence, of course they're putting immense pressure on their own backbenchers to, to say to them, you're elected as Conservative MPs, you'll damn well support us. But on an issue of this sort of dimension, where many people in politics have staked their whole career on the importance of resolving it, I don't think those traditional party loyalty arguments will necessarily apply any more than they did in May 1940. At the beginning of May 1940, all the clever people said, Neville Chamberlain has a huge Conservative majority, you know, even though we seem to be making some blunders in waging this war. It's very difficult to see how that could disintegrate it. By 10th of May, there was another Prime Minister in office with a wholly different sort of government. Is that what you think is going to happen with Theresa May's leadership come December when the Brexit bill probably goes before Parliament? Maybe the Conservative Party has to have an interim leader like David Davis um, just to get past the 29th of March 2019 and are Brexiting the EU. I mean, any hunches? We can't have predictions, but you might, as a political historian, have a hunch about what's going to happen. I think... With the magnitude of the issues at stake on both sides, there will be very strong pressure to go for bust on this. Brexit, as an issue, has got to be resolved one way or the other. Do we do it or not? Do we do it through a deal? Do we do it, if necessary, through, through no deal? Exactly which way it polarises, there are still different possibilities here. But I think there is a strength of feeling behind that which when you put it together with the fact that there is no Conservative majority in the House of Commons, when you put it together with the way that the Irish issue has resurfaced, as it has resurfaced so often in British politics in the last couple of hundred years, to make this even more uncertain, the one thing that seems to me unlikely is that Mrs May will be in any position to put her sort of deal on Brexit through the British Parliament with success within the next few months. And the timetable basically can't be altered without the consent of the EU. I foresee a rather dramatic end to this story. Gosh, you might even have Sinn Féin coming to take up their seats. You might then, of course, have the no deal, which would lead perhaps to a second referendum and a so-called people's vote, which May is supposed to not support, but it might in the end be her saviour. It might be her expedient, 
whether it's an expedient that would save her, I think, is very unlikely. I think what we are likely to see in the next few months is both a people's vote and a general election. The various technical reasons why you might argue a general election is more likely to come first, because under our constitution you can have one in three weeks. There are technical reasons why you can't mount a referendum, as the legislation is presently framed, for a matter of maybe six months. We need some answers before that. So which comes first is a matter that we can argue about. The reality is the clock is ticking. Article 50 was invoked. Everything must come to pass by the 29th of March, and that is not a decision that lies within the power of the British government or the British Parliament. The cards there are in the hands of the European Union. So far, they've been very good at maintaining their own unity, as you pointed out earlier, and they're not going to be reluctant in the end to play those cards. Not in a, a malicious spirit, I think, but they like to do things by the book, and how much they will bow to the needs of a British pragmatism at that point is something on which we can only speculate. So we are indeed back in the era of the Corn Laws, Balfour and the trade and tariff wars, and now it looks like Brexit. It's going to be a defining moment in the Conservative Party yet again in political history. I think so. And generally speaking... Ideology and conservatism, although they may make an interesting mix in this country, when they've been mixed, they haven't boosted the Conservative Party. In fact, they've led to some of its outstanding difficulties. The Conservatives have been at their most successful when they've been the moderate party of pragmatism and they've left these sort of ideological contortions to the party opposite, be it Liberal or Labour. We are in perhaps the third historical phase where the Conservatives are playing with dynamite themselves and who gets blown up is going to be the real issue. Professor Peter Clark, thank you very much. I hope we can regroup and come and talk again in the new year. Thank you for your, your verdict on Theresa May, her leadership, the Conservative Party and Brexit. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie.